0: exciting to write about a musician than it is to write about a writer. Um, I, (laughs) I, you know, so much of this is, you know, Greta is certainly not me. I don't know how to play the guitar and I'm definitely not cool enough to be a rock star, but a lot of how she views her music, her career, her passion, a lot of how she sees the world through her, her art and feels really fiercely proud of it, you know, comes from a really personal place for me. And so, Yeah, I think when I sat down and and started to write the book, I wanted to write about what it is to live a creative life and the challenges of that and the joys of it and everything in between. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, christy woodson harvey and patty callahan henry along with ron block as novelists we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us
1: and i am ron block please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing if you love books and are curious about the writing world you are in the right place Welcome to a new episode of the Friends and Fiction Writers Block Podcast. Today's episode is titled Entering Adulthood, and we're going to explore what it's like to publish in the adult fiction genre, both with a first-time author and a beloved YA author writing for grown-ups for the first time. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. I am Ron Block. First up, we're talking with Diana Rostad, author of the recent release You Belong Here Now which has had huge acclaim from the likes of Meg Waite-Clayton, the New York Journal of Books, a starred review from Library Journal, and very notably William Kent Kruger, who says, Rostad's big-hearted debut is full of surprises and warm with wisdom about what it means to be family. Having read the book, I couldn't agree more. It's perfect description. That's some great praise, though, Diana. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Ron. It's great to be here. Hello, everyone out there listening
1: listening in listening land. Okay, let me tell everybody a bit about Diana, and then we will dive right into this. Diana is a USA Today bestselling author. She was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest. Her parents and extended family come from the ranches of Montana and the farms of Arkansas. Diana raised three kind human beings, and when they began to test their wings, she took to writing with a passion, completing Southern Methodist University's Writer's Path program in 2009. Say that three times fast. Uh, Let's (laughs) start by having you tell us, Diana. Welcome again. Give us an overview of what the book is about.
2: Sure. Just really quickly, um, because I don't like spoilers.
1: Mm -hmm. No spoilers, no
2: I know. I, I hate them. The book is set in 1925, Montana. And the story begins when these three brave kids leave the train station of New York, headed west on this, this orphan train. And, you know, just stop after stop. These children aren't picked. You know, Charles is really big for his age. He's covered in bruises, and he's kind of scary looking. And you've got Patrick, who is an orphan from the Spanish flu. And he's got this, you know... Irish lilt, and every time he opens his mouth, nobody wants anything to do with him because at that time people were very prejudiced against the Irish. They thought they were lazy. And then there's Opal. She's a little tiny girl and she's no bigger than a bucket and she can't carry one and she won't talk. And so nobody chooses her either. And so these kids, you know, they're sort of the last ones on the train. And, you know, mysteriously, and I won't say how, they end up on a cattle ranch in Montana. With Nara, who's just, I mean, she's 34 years old. She's brisk. She's hardened. She's had to scrub away every bit of her femininity to rise up in a male dominated world because you see, she wants to run her father's really large cattle operation and she's the last of his kids, but he doesn't think that anybody's going to listen to a woman. And so he just wants her to get married and have children. And she doesn't want anything to do with that. So when she sees these kids on the ranch, she just, I mean, she blows it. She's like, I don't want anything to do with them. And so what she does do, though, (laughs) is she works them without mercy. She's really cruel. She hopes they'll run off, (laughs) but they don't. And they buck up and they actually show a lot of spirit. And so despite herself, Nara begins to take to these kids until one night, a band of wild horses are set free. They were rounded up for slaughter. And Charles, that oldest boy who's always in trouble, is jailed for the crime And they discover something really dark in his past from Hell's Kitchen. And so the family has to decide whether they can save this boy.
1: See now, I want to read it all over again. <laughs> that was a great description. Thank you. <laughs> and I always, I always have such envy for people books that I've really, really taken to. I wish I could start them over again, not knowing about them, because they're just so, so beautiful. Now the characters in this book they're just so rich and they're so well developed, and we are like so drawn to them—the three kids—but also strangely to Nera, who really stands out. She is, as you described her, so well. But she really commands the reader's attention. You want to hear. From her and what she's thinking of all the time. And you want to know everything right away. Yeah. <laughs> what was the inspiration for Nara, first of all?
2: Well, Nara, she started out as my maternal grandmother's namesake. And I loved my grandmother's name, Nara. It was really perfect for this character. And I wanted to pay homage, obviously, to my grandmother. But, you know, this character quickly morphed into my eldest headstrong daughter who was, she was brisk and she would confront you on, on your baloney. And she was all about the rules and she was a natural born leader. And so, you know, my daughter, Jessica, in her lifetime went into HR. In fact, she studied it in college and then she ended up going to, that's how much she loved the rules. So she wanted to go into HR. So human human resources, for those of you who don't understand that acronym. But yeah, so in the book, you know, is all about the rules. And then, you know, Charles only has one rule, and that's don't get caught. And so these two characters just butt heads until they kind of come to this realization that, you know, Justin, justice isn't created by fists, which is Charles' preferred method. <laughs> and it certainly isn't created by rules and law, which is... Nara's preferred method but it's it's more love love creates justice in our world so yeah
1: that's wonderful and the setting for the book i I believe has to do with a lot of your own background your family background and kind of told from that point of view um can you tell us a little bit about that because it's it again like the characters it's just so rich and, and and vivid it had to have come from someplace wonderful
2: yeah. You know, a lot of the, the little scenes in the book, like being under the the train, you know, as it goes over top, that's something that, you know, I did in my youth, um, on a little train bridge going over the Yakima river, we'd climb under there and just wait for the train to go across. And I, and it was just like everything, you know, was screaming at once in the whole universe, you know, and, and, and your toenails would rattle off, you know? And so I had to put that experience in the book. And also, you know, falling off the horse and, you know, getting the wind knocked out of you. And just so many, there's so many little cameos from my own childhood in here. And and obviously the book is set um, on my family's, you know, time in early 20th century Montana, ranching, you know, the way my grandfather wouldn't or wouldn't talk the way my father talked. And, you know, just little cuss words. My grandmother would say like shit fires. And I, I think mama, <laughs> mama starches, papa's shorts in the book. And that's something that my grandmother always threatened to do <laughs> when somebody was being on She'd say, well, just start their shorts. <laughs> you know. <And> so, <laughs> she was really cute. But I mean, that, I mean, all the songs in there that Papa sings are songs that my grandfather sang and you know, the way he'd talk and just, there's a lot of cute cameos in there from family. I have family read it and I go, well, you got to figure out who you are in the book and they can usually do it. So,
1: <laughs>
2: but you know, there's, were they all happy with it. <laughs> they were. Yeah. And you know, my dad was a huge influence. I didn't know where to set this book. You know, I, I had this storyline. I had these characters, you know, because their backgrounds I was very familiar with when I first heard about the orphan train, and these kids, I had already, you know, worked with kids in South Central Los Angeles after the riots. And it was a very similar thing. You know, I'd go pick these kids up after they crawled, get them cleaned up, get them some clothes and get them a job. And that's kind of what, you know, they're kind of doing as they go out on this train. They, you know, they cut their hair, they clean them up, they give them another set of clothing in a cardboard suitcase, and they put them on a train to go, go West to either, you know, get some sort of work program, which was one part of the program And then there was the other part of the program, which was true adoption. So I think the Children's Aid Society was really very progressive in their thinking in creating two very distinct uh, programs. If you were over 15, you were believed to be taken on for work. And so the contract really focused on that and protecting, you know, this young person. And if they were 15 and under or 14 and under, they were to be in every way treated as a member of a family. And so they were protected. And, and so it was just really interesting. But, you know, my background working with these, these kids from the youth authority in California really prepared me for, you know, what these kids were looking for and, and how brave they were too, you know, right? when the kids would come to me in the youth authority, they, they were always hopeful. And when I was researching all these pictures of these kids standing on train platforms and, you know, their faces and trains, these kids looked hopeful. You know, they, I think I think they felt like they could go on and no matter what, you know, they've been living on the streets without shoes and, you know, sleeping and, yeah. you know, together in little balls of kids with arms and legs sticking out. I mean, they had, they had some real trials in their youth. And so, but despite that, they get on these trains and they're just so hopeful. So it was inspiring to me with my background Definitely. and... Obviously, my father's a huge help. Uh, my aunts, they would, they got me songs off old song reels for my grandfather. You know, these these pictures that my father brought to Christmas one year with all of these, you know, amazing photos of people in boots and sitting on porches and everybody's in overalls. And it was just, it was just so, I mean, I could really picture my whole thing going on right there in Montana. So it was just, it really just broke open a whole wide
1: world right your, your background with children and, and thing really comes through because you can you've really set it up so that these kids really even though they're having a hard time they know they need to be protected and, and just the whole all those relationships between them and the family that um, takes them in are just they're just very poignant thank you let's go back a little bit and tell us where the original idea what drove you to even begin this adventure to write the book
2: I was reading an online article on CNN about the orphan trade and I was like, "Whoa, what is this? I've never heard of an orphan trade. You know, was I not listening in class <laughs> and teachers out there will say, yes, she was not listening in class.
1: <laughs> so yes.
2: <laughs> yes, they're nodding. So I, I was just astounded. And I, and I began to research it just straight away. And again, I really connected with, you know, the stories, the backgrounds of these kids living on the streets, they're in gangs, it reminded me so much of the kids on my caseload. And so I really felt like I was the right person to tell their story.
1: Wow. I love it. I love it. So, but the book was not just something you sat down and wrote overnight. You had quite a path to publication. Can you talk about that a little bit and how long and some of the details of it?
2: Oh, sure. You know, obviously back in 2007, I, I, you know, came up with this idea and I started laying the, you know, all the names, all the characters, what were their backgrounds and why were they there and what was going to happen in the wild horses and all that. And and so, but, you know, I also had this other project with this Lord Byron fellow and I was so obsessed with him and it was a good nine years of research and, you know, 40 books of information and many, many trips to the UK and and France and Scotland, and you know, to really kind of pursue Lord Byron. And I, I did write a gorgeous, beautiful book. But by the time I got it written, you know, the the literary industry had proclaimed uh, biographical fiction is dead. And they do this from time to time. And so I said, you know what? I've got this other idea. And uh, Christina Baker Klein's book has gone crazy, and she's doing so well. And I said, you know what? I'm going to write this book because I know I've got a good comp to base it on. And so. I had met my agent Marley Russoff and pitched her my Byron novel and she loved it. She thought it was audacious, but she did have a uh, conflict. And so I quickly said, you know what, I've gotten in touch with her. I'm going to do this, this um, orphan train book and, and I'll get it back to her. And, you know, it took me a couple of, uh, about a year and a half and then I called her with, and I pitched it to her and I had managed to get it submitted to about four executive editors at big publishers, you know, the big five. Nice. So I let her know that in my voicemail, and so she said, "Okay, I want to see this." And in two days' time, she offered to represent me. So she's got quite an interest in Montana. You just never know where you know you're going to find somebody and why, and why you'll, why you'll really connect up with them. You know,
1: right, right, right. right. So, and I, I love hearing those stories too because they they could almost be novels themselves sometimes about oh, how people yeah. get connected. Once you finally got the deal and you, the book was set to be published, what was that like leading up to the publication date?
2: Well, you know, it's of course very bewildering because you don't know anything about it. You've, you've figured out how to write, you've figured out how to pitch it, you've figured out how to sell it. And now you have to produce it with Mm -hmm. a publisher. And it's like, you know, I liken it to, you know, the wizard of Oz. And I just have always, I just wanted to go to New York and pull back the curtain you know and say what's going on back there <laughs> you know because <what> I mean? <laughs> you don't you don't get a lot of information they they'll ask you for this and that and you go back and forth and you don't know the process yet and so you really it's a huge learning curve and it you know, you just have to be very curious, ask a lot of questions and hold on for the ride. <laughs> so,
1: it's <a>, So <laughs> Yes, it is a ride, isn't it? So what about all the accolades you've been getting? You've got some really good support and yeah. raves about the book. How did that feel?
2: It felt wonderful, especially, you know, William Kent Kruger. He wrote me just a absolutely beautiful email. I almost fell out of my chair uh, because he is one of my very favorite authors <laughs> And we sort of people our books very similarly. And so I knew he would take to this book. And so I tried very hard to get it in front of him. And I did manage to get it in front of him. And sure enough, he loved it. And so I was really so grateful to him and always, always will be very grateful to him and to Meg White Clayton. And you know Erica Roebuck and all of the mm. other folks and Lena DiRandall who you know took it up and read it for and Kathleen Grissom. <laughs> so,
1: yeah,
2: it <laughs> was very very yes. kind of them. Where I'm always yeah going to be grateful for that.
1: That's good. Now, of course, the pressure's on for what's coming next. What are you working on?
2: Well, that's the thing. I'm having to pivot to that. And, you know, I've, I've held on and I've not began that next book. I mean, I've I've started it in fits and, and I'm writing my notes and I've got some outline and I've done some research, but I haven't started it yet because I've been so focused on lifting this first book up and making sure that it does well, because you only have one time to go out and debut. And actually it was um, something Kathleen Grisham said to me uh, last summer, last I think last May, or I think I, um, last May, it's on my YouTube channel. I interviewed her and, and, you know, she said, go out on that, that road trip, you know, that bookstore road trip and shake hands and and really meet people and make, you know, some good, um, you know, acquaintances and just figure out what the industry is all about because the bookstore is really where the rubber hits the road
1: you know. Yes, yes, it is. And she was very
2: right. And I'm so glad I did that. I put 10,000 miles on my car wow. <laughs> last summer. <laughs> yeah. And then I went out for a fall tour and I had my first Barnes and Noble book talk in Missoula, Montana. And, you know, lots of festivals in the fall. And so it's been really kind of a blur. And, and now I, I will really really love to get settled down and just get into my little writing space and start that next, you know, beautiful story. But I want to make sure that it's even better than the one before that I've learned this and that.
1: I am sure that you have learned a lot, awful lot along the way, and you'll be able to apply it. And but of course, the debut is always so wonderful, but they always say the, the follow-up is where you really have to dig in. Mm-hmm. So, so I know you'll do it. I know you'll do that. So I'm going to go back a little bit. What were the values around reading and books growing up for you?
2: Yeah, you know, I always loved to read. I can't say that I was terribly encouraged, but, um, you know, this book back here, Black Beauty, I bought that because it was on the floor of my, you know, childhood bedroom. And when I saw it in an old bookstore, I grabbed it up and I, I recognized it immediately. Yeah, and And so I did read a lot of Jack London. He was a big fixture in the Pacific Northwest, obviously, and James and the giant peach. I just remember, you know, sitting in the library as maybe a third grader and pulling, you know, James and the giant peach off the shelf and just sitting right there on the floor and leaning back against the shelf and opening that up. And it was just a whole wonderful world. And, and I, you know, it probably is not something I was encouraged a lot, but I just absolutely right. loved it. And yeah. So, and I've always been a great reader in my adulthood. And so writing just came naturally from that, I
1: think. Good. Good. Do you have any, you've mentioned some of the people that have influenced your work, but are there any others that you kind of revisit and try to, to take influence from?
2: Yeah. You know, I, in terms of authors, you know, I, I like to take from a lot of authors, like the things they do, the devices they'll use I don't really, I'm not really inspired by anything they've done specifically like to their characters and story, but more like how they did it. You know, I'm like, wow, that was a really good way to do X, you know, and not that I'll ever remember it, but, <laughs> so. but, you know, you do try to really keep with a solid, strong thought line. That's really important to me that, you know, my books are pacey and they're enjoyable and that people just can't put them down in the middle kind of thing, that there's this natural build and, you know, great right. kind of EKG, if you will.
1: Oh, that's a great term. I love that EKG. It's, it, Cause your book really did read like that. It's like, boop, 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 all the different highlights that came through any books recently that you've read that you've raved about to people.
2: Oh my gosh. Um, lightning strike was amazing by William Kent Krueger right. I'm reading, yep. the, I'm reading the diamond die right now by Kate Quinn. Um, oh my gosh. I can't wait oh. to talk about that on social media and also sisters of night and fog by Erica Roebuck. Fabulous. you just, you feel like you're right there and you know, resistance, France or French resistance. I don't know what they call it. Um, I'm not a great world war II historian, but I love to read the stories. And so those are things right. that I'm yeah. really, really
1: enjoying. That's, that's quite a list of (laughs) you and I could be reading buddies. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So you mentioned social media, where can people find you online and find out more about you and keep track of what's coming down the road for you?
2: You know, I'm on Facebook. I've got a website. My website is full of information. I I love book clubs. And so I've created a book club kit, which I uh, typically give away. It has recipes and, has a nice color history behind the book. And it also has the nice questions and a, and a cute little bag and, and a few other things. And so on my website, you'll find a place to contact me to join your club. You'll find all my YouTube interviews with drain writer descendants and the history, just a lot of good resources for clubs. And obviously a way to contact me in general, but if you want to know what's going on, you know, hit my website or, you know, follow me on Facebook
1: great great well diana it's been amazing to meet you and hear the fascinating backstory of this book i really did love the book and i devoured it it was just it's so well written and i can't wait to to read something else from you you're on your way and congratulations on the book
2: well thank you so much ron i really enjoyed having this conversation
1: with you next up it's my pleasure to introduce jennifer e smith Many of you may know her from her very popular YA books. She's about to break out huge, though, in fiction for adults with the unsinkable Greta James, which is highly, and I mean highly, anticipated, and pubs on March 1st. In fact, Kirkus gave it a starred review, which is a... Quite, quite an honor. They said, it's a well-told story with evocative prose that bears, B-A-R-E-S, and bears, B-E-A-R-S, the ragged emotions that accompany a journey to healing. That says a lot about the book. So I am thrilled to have you as a guest, Jennifer. Welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
1: Yeah, as you know, I have read the book in the past and I really I, I just it's a book I absolutely adore and I know that people are going to just eat this one up and they're going to they're going to pre-order it like crazy. Well,
0: thank you. Your opinion means a lot. So I it's it's it just it's a nice compliment. Thank you.
1: But let me tell everybody a little bit about our guest today. Jennifer E. Smith is the author of nine books for young adults including The Statistical Probability of Love at First Sight and Hello, Goodbye and Everything in Between. Both of which have been adapted for film, and we're going to talk about that. She earned a master's degree in creative writing from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and her work has been translated into 33 languages. Yes, 33. She currently lives in Los Angeles. Jennifer, it's so wonderful to see you again. I know we've done an event before, but I was so excited to have you here on the podcast and to get to talk to you again more in depth about Greta. Well, thank you. I, I Honestly, I haven't been able to stop talking about it, and I'm trying to get people to pre-order it and put it on their TBR list, and it's it's just insane. Sometimes I'm going you like you
0: to make you my publicist, Ron.
1: Thank you. Okay. <laughs> well, we won't tell Karen that.
0: <laughs> I appreciate everything. Thank you. No,
1: it's great. It's great. So tell everybody what the book is about. Give, give us an overview.
0: Yeah, so it's, about, it's a story of a, a successful indie musician who is reeling from the sudden death of her mother and winds up on a week-long cruise to Alaska with her dad, who has never exactly been supportive of her life choices on what was supposed to be her parents' 40th anniversary trip. So, you know, there's also a romance with the charmingly nerdy professor, and there's a lot of Alaskan scenery. But first and foremost, it's really the love story about Greta and her music and, and her struggle to find her voice again.
1: That's yes, very well put. Thank you. And there's a lot in between all that. Yes. So don't think you got you got the whole story there.
0: But it is the
1: first entry into adult fiction. So can you talk about the transition?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've been wanting to write a novel for adults for a long time. I I feel very privileged to have written young adult for as many years as I have and and I'm not, I'm not done doing that either. It's it's just a joy to write for teens who are so honest they will tell you if they love your book they will tell you if they don't but when they embrace something they embrace it with just such wholehearted enthusiasm and passion so i've i've loved doing all of that but also I, I was doing it for over a decade and in that decade i got older and it is it has been very cathartic to explore and um spend time with a character who's closer to my own age and who's thinking about a lot of the things that i'm thinking about so um, it, it just was a nice, you know, it was in some ways it was a, it was an easy transition. I don't think, you know, there's sometimes a misconception when you're writing young adult that you're, you know, you're aging things down or you're, um, making it simpler, but you're not my writing was my writing. It's, it's, it's really just a matter of point of view, but right. so it, in some ways it, it made it easy, but I also think, because of, because of the age thing, because of writing a a character closer to my age, there's an extra depth to Greta and to this book that I found really, really gratifying in the writing.
1: Yeah, I I can see that too. It's true experience in your writing for this, the age that you are now is a lot because as a younger person, you really connect with all these emotions of being a teenager, but you have life experience Mm -hmm. now that, that lets you tell a different story.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it was, it's it's a, it's a broader story. You know, my young adult novels were mostly romance and Mm I, I'm, I love writing that. So this is why there is the charmingly nerdy professor in this book. But it was also nice to write a story where that was really the third story. I mean, I, I always say this book is three love stories in one. And it's first, as I said, about Greta and her music. And secondly, it's about Greta and her dad. And, and really third is the kind of classic romance. So it was also fun to just, just have a book that felt like it was, you know, three and one in a way, something for everybody. Yes,
1: that's perfect. I wish, yeah, I wish I had said that. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> I got you, Ron. I said, I said.
1: <laughs> I know you. Do. You got. It. We got. We can do this. What a team. What a yes. team. Greta is is highly emotional, and she kind of works her emotions out through her music. And I, there's an early scene where where that becomes evident, and that kind of changes her path a little bit. But what made you decide to use music as a, the way to tell her story?
0: I mean, honestly. It's more exciting to write about a musician than it is to write about a writer. <laughs> um, That's I, well
1: true. <laughs> I, you
0: know, so much of this is, is in, you know, Greta is certainly not me. I don't know how to play the guitar and I'm definitely not cool enough to be a rock star, but I, but a, a lot of how she, views her her music her career her passion a lot of how she sees the world through her her art and and feels really fiercely proud of it Mm -hmm. is is you know comes from a really personal place for me and so yeah I think I just when I when I sat down and and started to write the book I wanted to write about what it is to live a creative life and and the challenges of that and the and the joys of it and everything in between and I, I genuinely did think you know First, I I don't want to make it a writer because they just sit at their desks and write. And and what better way to kind of explore it is through through a musician. And there's something so kind of uh, outward facing about that kind of art that I thought would be. I also just like the idea of dropping this very cool indie rock star on a cruise ship with her dad (laughs) and just seeing what happens. It's just there's something really incongruous about it. And it was it was a fun, fun setup.
1: It really it really was a fun setup. The idea of putting them both on a cruise ship just kind of blew my mind a little bit because it's a it's almost like a perfect setting because everything can happen within that confine. But why did you? Well, two things. I want to know the kind of research that went into it. Like you really wrote about music as though you were on the inside. You mean, it was very real uh, to read about it. Like you were an insider. Same with the cruise ship. Did you have to go on a cruise? I did
0: go on the cruise. So I had actually been on a a cruise to Alaska with my family. I was lucky enough to go on one when I was in high school and Alaska just always loomed large. There's something about it. It's unlike anywhere else in the world, honestly. And I thought, you know, you know, I mean, A, it's always nice if you're going to write a book and have to go do a research trip to set it somewhere, kind of fun to visit. But you want to go, <laughs> yes, exactly, which is not the only reason I did that. But, but you know, the crew, the cruise ship element of it was that I mean, it's a joke with me and my agent that I I have now written a book that takes place on an airplane, a book that takes place on a train, a road trip story, yep. and now a cruise ship. And um, her joke is that I'm going to next write a love story that takes place on a scooter. <laughs> um, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> Or a spaceship.
0: <laughs> a spaceship something I got. I'm running out of vehicles, um, modes of transportation. But I, I like this kind of story because I'm very obsessed with like novels and stories and narratives that are bound by, by time and by space. So like you take two people who either um either don't get along in the case of Greta and her dad, or two people who is also the case with Greta and her dad, who kind of don't know they need each other at the moment they need each other and put them together in a confined space and say, you know, let's just see what happens. So that's really where that came from. And and I thought, because I'd been on the cruise as a kid, that I could kind of bluff my way through it, you know, via memory and old photos and YouTube videos of other people's family vacations. And I kind of quickly, as I was writing, I realized I was going to need to do one myself. So I actually went a few years ago and I, I did a little writing retreat on a cruise to Alaska and it, you know, completely is what allowed me to really capture, um, you know, the setting because it, it's, it is so unique. It's, it's kind of otherworldly. And I think. The, you know, so many of the the stops that they make on the cruise, most of the stops are, are things that I did, and so to be able to write about them in in kind of a realistic way. And then the music, you know, I'm I like I said, I'm, I don't play the guitar. I might even be tone deaf. It's debatable if anyone's heard me sing. Um, <laughs> we'll that yeah, you <laughs> yeah, you do not want to. But I'm obviously a big music fan, and um, I honestly, it was the most fun research you could do. I just spent hours and hours watching you know, concert videos and, and set lists from, from, um, festivals and shows. And I, I literally, when I started writing this book, just Googled like badass female guitarists and started there. There And I, you know, it, it was just, it was just really fun to dive in. And I tried to read lots of interviews and articles about what, what, you know, what that life is. And, and what's interesting about it is it could not in some ways be more different than, you know, on the surface than being a writer, but then at the heart of it, it's, you know, every artist has to deal with the same kinds of, of worries and uncertainties. And, and the fact that you're in this, this strange and wonderful profession with no guarantees.
1: Right. Right. And your next project, worrying mainly about what your next project is going to be. Yeah,
0: exactly. I mean, it's, yeah, there's no, there's sort of, you know, it's these are these are industries and careers with, with, no safety net. And
1: True.
0: I wanted to like I think you're always, even when you're doing well in these kinds of jobs, you're always sort of worried about the bottom dropping out. And what I wanted to do was 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 drop in on an artist who, who had just had that happen and was kind of dealing with the, the fallout and had to find her way back.
1: Wow. okay so where did the original idea come from for the book like it, it had to like what was the spark
0: the spark was 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 a little bit more general than most of my books most of my books start with like you know, if this had been a typical one of my books, it probably would have started with the cruise ship and say, I'm going to take two different people and put them on a cruise ship. And then I'm going to figure out what happens to them. But actually this one really started with, with like me wanting to answer a question, which was, what is it to live a creative life? Especially when you, you've grown up in a very practical way. Um, which is, which is a bit, you know, personal in some ways. I, my, you know, in the book, Greta's mom is, is, was her, was her greatest cheerleader before she died. And her dad, is sort of the really practical one who always has doubts. And I always say my parents are kind of a little bit of both there. I grew up in a very practical place with a very practical family and they are definitely my biggest cheerleaders. They will go to the bookstores and like move my books up to the front tables and they read all the reviews, but then they also, they, you know, they, they definitely wanted me to be doing something with like, I mean, they probably would have been a lot very excited if I had been a lawyer or something. So it's you know, right. I think it's just that that sense of and when you grow up that way with that sense of, of practicality and worry, it's hard to take those leaps that that you're required to take to be an artist. And and so the book really started with just wanting to explore something that that, you know, felt kind of personal to me.
1: Yeah, it's 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 kind of a glimpse because anybody who's in the spotlight is whether it's a famous writer or a musician. We don't understand necessarily their background and, and their family and where they come from, and and you give a great glimpse of that in the book and and their 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 history and uh, where they are now. And
0: no, I just want to say you, it is true because you you like every you know like every rock star has like um like you know had a mom and a dad and every rock star has like has to like go to thanksgiving somewhere and you know go to right. like there there's like you you see you know i think i am also very interested in just the, the ideas of like the juxtapositions of fame and and reality and and it's you know people like like who live that kind of life have a real range between like the mundane and the kind of surreal in their lives. And, and again, I just, I, the idea of like a rock star kind of like, you know, when you're with your parents, no matter what age you are, and you sort of feel like a 14 year old again, and it's just her and her dad who's disapproving of her and not impressed by the things she's done. And, and, you know, and it's, he's not a bad guy. They just uh, have lost their translator. It was her mom. And and a lot of his, his love manifests as worry. And it's just the idea of the two of them at the buffet on a cruise ship was such a fun (laughs) concept to me.
1: (laughs) Well, and also just thrown in the mix is I call them like the Greek chorus. All the the friends of her mom and dad that go along, they kind of like keep everything going. But they're lovely. Are they based on anybody in particular?
0: They're not really. They're. I mean, I think probably in some ways it's in the way that you you don't plan to base anybody on anybody, but they're probably a, a, an amalgamation of all my parents' friends and all my friends' parents over the years. But yeah, I love the idea that, like, especially with the absence of Greta's mom, that you know, she's, they're there, the cruise was supposed to be three couples and, you know, that, that she's got these other people kind of looking out for her and it's, you know, it's just, yeah, there's like a lot of, there's a lot of love and also absurdity with, (laughs) with all the friends.
1: So in the actual writing of the book, did you have to kind of pull yourself back a little bit from what you were normally used to? Because it is it is like new territory for you, so it had to be a little scary.
0: Yeah, I think it was less pulling back, honestly, and more having to go deeper and try and oh. kind of push push a little bit further in terms of like the big emotions, in terms of the big moments. and and But, you know, the writing of it, I, I wrote... I wrote the first like maybe 60 or 70 pages and then had, and then realized I needed to go take this cruise. And so kind of, you know, set it down for a while. And then when I came back, I had a, another book due, And so whereas most of my books, it's kind of sit down. This is the book I'm writing for a while. Um, this one was a little bit of fits and starts. And then actually I was, (laughs) I was very close to finishing the first draft of it. Um, it was the second draft, but I was, it was getting closer. Um, Right, right when COVID happened, and I don't know if you remember, at the beginning of it all, all the news was about cruise ships, and I was like, "Oh my god, I just spent years <laughs> writing a book on a cruise ship. No one's ever going to go on one again. No one's ever going to want to read about it. This is a disaster." But in fact, I, I actually think what, what I've been hearing from from early readers on the book is that you know it's it's, it's if there's a fourth love story to this book, it's Alaska, and and it's a it's you know right. meant to be sort of transportive, and I think it's actually you know kind of. A uh, nice thing in a time when travel's not quite as easy as it used to be.
1: Yep. A vacation in a book. Yeah. Go to Alaska. Yeah. But it's true. You're right. Obviously, you can tell that you, you have a love for Alaska because that comes through with all their excursions and the things that they do. And, yeah. and, and they're just little settings to kind of like have them work through some of their issues. Mm-hmm. Go, I could talk about this for weeks. <laughs> Thank you. No spoilers, but I, I I just I can't get over the ending. The ending is both unexpected and hugely satisfying. And there's, there's kind of two spots there, but like... Like, were, were, did you always know that or how did those come to be? No, I'm not
0: yeah, I won't give anything away. I'm not a I'm not a plotter. so I just kind of write my way into books and and see what happens. And it's fun to think back now, you know, especially the the kind of one big moment that I won't give away that that I know you love and then everybody is kind of loves and it makes everybody cry. i didn't yes. I didn't know I was gonna do that until I was in the scene. And so it's it's there's so many you know, I, I've in my, you know, I've written, I think this is my 10th novel. And in between, there's been a couple of times where I've thought, you know, this is a really inefficient way of writing to just go in and try to figure it out as you go along. And it's, you know, maybe I should try to plot a book. And every time I've done it, I felt very boxed in. It's felt very paint by number to me that, so gotcha. it, and it doesn't leave room for these kinds of surprises. So I think, I think there's a level where your subconscious is working on a lot of these problems as you're writing and, and it kind of, you you like certain moments in the book, it feels like you're walking, walking, walking. And then you kind of step off a cliff and you're hoping that your subconscious will catch you and that your brain has been working out these, these things without you even quite knowing. And it is kind of amazing to me, even after all this time, it's such a leap of faith because it, you know, it's, it's certainly there are times when it doesn't happen and you're stumped and you have to walk away from it or you write the bad version and you come back later. But some of my favorite moments in my books are things that that I just was kind of driving towards without knowing what I was driving towards. And then they appeared in the moment. Um, so it always feels gotcha. like a gift when that happens.
1: Right. Oh, it's a gift to the reader too. I'm telling you, <laughs> well, you know what I think about that. <laughs> so I want to know a little bit more about your background. I read a little bit that says that you, you know, so it doesn't sound like you just walked through uh, a door at a publishing house with a bestseller in your hand. No. It took, it took some work. Do you mind talking about that a little bit and kind of your path?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Cause I, I'm a, you know, I think sometimes it can look like that from the outside and, and for some people that is their path. And I mm-hmm. have, that has not been what it is for me yet I've had this really lovely, wonderful career that I'm, I'm really proud of, but I think, you know, it's, it's in a way kind of what I was trying to write about with Greta because, she, you know, she's before she, she kind of is in her thirties before she has a, you know a big break and it's, you know, you have to have a lot of rejection and you have to have a lot. There's, there's just a lot that happens before you get there. Um, at least there was for me. So, I mean, I wrote, I wrote my, I wrote two novels that didn't get published before my first one did. And, after I wrote the first one and I had an agent at the time, but it didn't sell. And I look back now with a kind of breathlessness, like and just an immense gratitude for for my younger self that I still sat down and and kept at it. Because when I think now of like being in my, you know, early to mid twenties and writing a whole novel that got roundly rejected and then sitting down You know, I was obviously, I was working a full time, maybe not obviously. I was working a full time job. I was getting up in the mornings to write, writing on the weekends. Um, I worked in publishing. So I was kind of soaking it all up and, and trying to learn everything, but working in publishing, um, means reading a lot. Yeah. It doesn't, certainly doesn't guarantee anything. And it also means like you got homework every night because you're reading manuscripts. So there wasn't a lot of time to write. And so you kind of like carve out this precious time. I have this like memory of, of like, (laughs) Like literally, you know, having an apartment with roommates in New York City, my roommates all kind of hung over on a Sunday watching TV and I'm in my room like writing this thing that you didn't know if anything would ever come of it. And then it didn't. And then I opened up another document, started writing, wrote another 300 some pages, and then that got roundly rejected. And again, when I look back now and think how wild it is that younger me did that for a third time with no encouragement, in fact, with a lot of discouragement and did it again, I just feel like it so easily couldn't not like it so easily might have not happened. And I am kind of still in, in awe and, um, of, of like the fact that I did that. And and thank God I did because, you know, so the third one, but then even then the third one got published and you know it sold like no copies and then the, the the second one which was my fourth novel that I written but my second one to get published same thing and it wasn't until my third published novel um the statistical probability of love at first sight that no. <laughs> that it really broke out and and kind of changed the course of my life and my career but then I will say that even then it's up and it's just it's an up and down business and I've had other books that have you know had massively high expectations that have done just okay I've had books that have had no publisher expectations that, you know, went on through word of mouth to sell really well. And I've had everything in between. And I think, you know, my goal in this has always been longevity because I love what I do. I feel so lucky to get to do this. I, I, and you just want to kind of keep hustling and and you realize, I think both between working and publishing, because I was an editor for many years and writing this many books, you realize how much of this is luck and timing and chance and fate. And like at a certain point, you just try to control what you can control, which is to write the best book possible. And right. so that's just what I've always tried to do. And, and in a weird way, you, you like can't take it personally. What happens both like within the industry and outside of it in terms of like reception to the book and, with Greta, I'm, I keep saying, and I mean it really deeply that I'm more proud of this book than anything I've ever written. And it's a really nice feeling going into a publication because I don't know if people will love it. I don't know if people will buy it, but I've never felt so good about something that I've put out into the world. And it, it makes you feel kind of Zen about it. Cause it's sort of like, this is now, you know, this is what I've done what I can. And now we'll see what happens.
1: Oh, well, (laughs) if I'm at the bookstore, you people are going to be buying, (laughs) but I just got goosebumps hearing that that's so authentic of you and and just so heartfelt, I can tell. And and I I just, I wish everybody gets their hands on Greta.
0: Thank you. I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's switch just a little bit. I know we're running out of time, but let's talk movies.
0: Yeah. Yes. Very exciting.
1: You have a couple in the works.
0: I do. I have two movies based on two of my YA books, The Statistical Probability of Love at First Sight and Hello Goodbye and Everything in Between, Uh. which both the movies filmed about a year ago. And um, I don't yet, I can't say where they'll be out and I don't yet know when they'll be out, but I can say that I love them both so much. And it is, feels like, just the luckiest thing in the world to, to be so wholeheartedly in love with these films. They are wonderful. I cannot wait for people to see them. And this is another thing where it, a lot of it's left, right. And a lot of it's chance and timing. And, and I look at, you know, statistical probability, you know, during the time that that book came out and, and with a lot of excitement, um, it, uh, the movie rights got optioned. And that was, it, it the movie rights got optioned almost 10 years to the week that the movie started filming. Um, so it's, again, it's long, it's a long game, this whole thing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that was in development with other actors and producers and writers and it, it kind of had a really long road and, and for such a long time, I just would, would wish for it to happen and hope for it to happen. And then, and then if, you know, then it, it, you know, came into the hands of, um, some producers, um, and a, an amazing writer, an amazing director, amazing actors. And it just felt like, you know, it happened at the moment. It was supposed to happen with the team that it was supposed to happen with. And it's the version of it that I always hoped it would be. And I just couldn't be more excited for it, them to be out.
1: Oh, I know. I can't wait to see them.
0: <laughs> They're wonderful. I they really are. I, I know I'm biased, but I just... I I love them both so much, so I can't wait for people to see them.
1: But but like a really great YA novel, the books or the movies that have been made from them are just so revered by uh, teenagers. They love them. So I can't yes. wait for yes. the reaction to all those.
0: Yes. I don't think these will disappoint. No, they, I'm sure. They will.
1: <laughs> any any interest in Greta? Because I'd like to put it out there that I'm available <laughs> to play Conrad.
0: I mean, I could see it. I could definitely see it. There's been a bit of interest and in we're talking to people and, and, and figuring that all out too. It's, it's the one thing I've learned about Hollywood is just that it's, you know, it's, about being patient and waiting for the right you know now now that I've had these two really wonderful experiences, and I've seen you know what a an adaptation of one of my stories can be, i I really am always looking for just the exact right team and route, you know. You want it to be good. great.
1: Good, good, good. I have I have a whole list of writers that want to talk to you about this process. <laughs> oh,
0: good. Anytime.
1: Oh, uh, I mean, it's, optioning is one thing, but then it, it may never get made. So it's kind of like you get excited, but mm, yeah. Th- now what? Yeah, it's
0: a real up and down thing. And again, I just I just honestly feel really really fortunate. And and the, you know, I have a couple others in development too, and and we're having talks about Greta, and it's 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 all really fun. But I think it goes back to like. You know, you can get really wrapped up in it, but, but all of it starts with the book and that's the thing you can control. And you have to kind of look at, you kind of have to look at all that, that as like icing on the cake. And sometimes there's a lot more icing than cake, (laughs) but like the cake is the thing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. It's all, it all starts with the source material. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. So. What's next for you?
0: Do you have, what are you working on? I'm working on another novel for adults to follow up yes. Greta. Yes, which I'm I'm yes. very excited about. Um right now I'm I'm in kind of, you know, Greta mode with the publication so close, but I I'm really excited about the next one too and and I'm not sure when that will be out. I've only, you know, 50 pages into it, but I'm I'm very excited about it and it's nice to write another you know, story for, for about, again, people sort of close to my own age and a family story and a, another emotional story. And then I'm working on, I, I have my first picture book come out in the fall. Um, It's called, yes. uh, yeah, it's called The Creature of Habit. It's about a little creature who lives on the island of habit and does the same thing every day. And then this other little creature sails up and like knocks his whole world off balance. And that's been so much fun. Talk about different age groups. So they like, do, you know, school visits with with, you know, kindergartners and first graders who, when it's time for the Q and A, their question is like, Do you like turtles? (laughs) Right, right. It's just adorable. I like green. (laughs) So I just, I'm working on a sequel for that too, because we're doing another one.
1: Oh, good, good, good. I know, I know kids that in the libraries have loved that.
0: It's been, it's been a really, it's just been a really fun. It's, you know, this is part of it is I did write YA novels for a very long time. And again, really loved it. And, but in the past couple of years, I wrote the picture book, the adult novel. And I've written a couple of scripts as well. And it's, it's been really fun to just do new, you know, you have to have new challenges for yourself and, and keep things interesting. Yeah. so it's been fun great
1: so my god you've got so much going on but where can people connect with you and find out more about what's going on online yeah.
0: i'm on instagram at jennifer e smith and twitter at jen e smith and i have a website that's just jennifer it's a very easy name to remember yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah I'm like, i like i always love to hear from people
1: great good i i, I can't thank you enough for joining us today i, I know that people are going to be over the moon about Greta and everything else you have going on. So congratulations on everything. And I hope this launch is the best yet.
0: Thank you, Ron. And thank you so much. Your enthusiasm for this book has made me so happy. And I just, I feel (laughs) lucky to have met you and I appreciate you having me
1: same here but it's it's the work the work speaks for itself so i want everybody to do that and we will we'll have pre-order links on our bookshop.org shop so they'll
0: be there too thank you so much
1: and thank you to everyone listening it's so heartwarming to know that you're out there and on behalf of mary kay patty christy and Kristen, thank you for being a part of the friends and family be sure to invite a friend to join you Remember, you can always find all the books by every Friends and Fiction Writers Block podcast guest, past and present, in the Friends and Fiction shop. All sales placed there help to fund Friends in Fiction and a portion of each and every sale goes straight into the pockets of indie booksellers nationwide. Since its inception, bookshop.org has raised more than 16 million for indie bookstores. Shop small, shop local, from the convenience of your screen with bookshop.org and tell them Friends in Fiction sent you. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate and review on your favorite podcast platform tune in every friday for another episode
0: and you can also join us every week on facebook or youtube where our live friends and fiction show airs at 7 p.m eastern standard time we are so glad you're here
1: produced by autovita studios connect your voice to the world